Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, the impact of income disparities, how much you earn could affect how long you live. Plus, the new proposal to ban smoking at thousands of public housing complexes across the country. And is organic meat and milk healthier for you? One study says yes, but we'll explain why it has some critics. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. Discussions around income and inequality have been key topics during the 2016 presidential election. And now we're getting a new look at how disparities in what we earn may be affecting how long we live. That's right, Noah. A new analysis from the Brookings Institution and the University of Michigan shows the lifespan gap between rich and poor Americans is growing. Economists found that among men who were born in 1950, the top 10% of earners can expect to live 14 years longer than the bottom 10%. That's more than double the gap for men born in 1920. And the gap among women has widened as well, from just under 5 years to 13 years. The exact cause of this widening gap is unclear, but experts tell the New York Times that one factor may be that smoking rates have declined among affluent and educated Americans. Researchers at the Harvard Chan School say the Great Recession may have also contributed to these widening gaps. Lisa Berkman, the director of the Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies, says that it's become harder for many people to earn a living wage, and this can have significant ripple effects. Minimum wage is not enough to really make a living. Dual wage earners and families are now by far the most common. Uh, That takes another toll on families. We need to think about flexibility in the workplace. So as we have aging societies, complex family constellations, single moms, single parents, people who are in a sandwich generation, flexibility and part-time work is very important. And finally, job insecurity, I think, drives an enormous set of outcomes for people. So when we look at the effects of economic recessions, of graduating during periods of um, recessions, we understand the long-term toll that poor economies take, again, on the most disadvantaged populations, but on all of us as a whole. While we've discussed the growing gap in life expectancy between the rich and the poor, it's important to note that when it comes to overall life expectancy, the U.S. compares poorly with other developed nations. According to data from the World Bank, the U.S. ranks 34th in overall life expectancy. Officials at the National Institutes of Health say they are accelerating their timeline for the production of a vaccine for Zika virus. NIH director Anthony Felci says scientists have been able to take advantage of previous research done on similar viruses and may be ready to start tests on 20 to 30 people this summer. That small trial would eventually be followed by a larger trial in early 2017. And Amy, while much of the concern around Zika virus has centered on links to the birth defect microcephaly, Colombian scientists now say they have found a link between Zika and the paralyzing condition known as Guillain-Barre syndrome. According to Sky News, those researchers believe that persistent infection from the Zika virus can trigger a chain reaction, causing the immune system to attack the nerves, resulting in the paralysis. In addition to Colombia, seven other countries in South and Central America have reported a steep rise in cases of Guillain-Barre. A proposal to ban smoking in public housing across the country could have significant health benefits for millions of people. That's the view of researchers at the Harvard Chan School and Boston University. Now, that proposal from the U.S. Office of Housing and Urban Development would prohibit smoking within 25 feet of buildings at more than 2,600 public housing authorities across the country, 
home to approximately 2 million people. Writing in the journal the American Medical Association, the researchers say that people living in public housing are particularly vulnerable to the effects of secondhand smoke. That's partly due to the high rate of smoking among public housing residents, but also due to the fact that many public housing complexes are multi-unit buildings. The close quarters and ventilation ducts linking apartments allow smoke to spread more easily. And Amy, the goal of this proposal is not to simply ban smoking. We spoke to one of the article's authors, Alan Geller of the Harvard Chan School, and he says that a key part of this plan will be giving residents the tools to help them quit. Everybody should be given a full opportunity to quit smoking, and that involves access to a quit line, free unfettered access to nicotine replacement therapy. There's a number of things that we know work, but for people who live on very, very fixed incomes, it's a conscious decision that people make. Do I decide to quit smoking? Or if I make thirteen or $14,000 a year, even the expense of nicotine replacement therapy is something that I need to consider. Education has a really key role to play here. Access has a key role. And one of the things that is to try and train public housing residents who used to smoke to become advocates for those people who do smoke. So if you're getting that kind of education, you're getting it from somebody that you know and trust as opposed to somebody from the outside. Geller points out that getting current smokers to quit could have a significant ripple effect by making it less likely that their children will then smoke. People who provide care to older or disabled family members or friends may be sacrificing their own well-being. Researchers at John Hopkins say that caregivers who provide, quote, substantial help are three times more likely to suffer productivity problems at work and twice as likely to experience physical, financial, or emotional problems. An estimated 6 million people in the U.S. provide significant care for older adults, and they spend an average of 28 hours a week doing so. Nearly half are assisting an older adult with dementia. In Michigan this week, there are rising tensions over the response to Flint's water crisis. The city's mayor, Karen Weaver, and the state's governor, Rick Snyder, are at odds over how quickly to replace lead pipes in the city. Last year, corrosive water from the Flint River caused lead to leach from those pipes into the water supply. Governor Snyder proposed a three-step plan for replacing the pipes, starting with figuring out if any pipes can be coated as a temporary fix to allow drinkable water into homes. But Weaver says the lead pipes need to be removed completely. As Flint grapples with the response to the crisis, the Harvard Chan School gathered experts to discuss the dangers of exposure to lead and other chemicals. Philippe Grandjean of the Harvard Chan School says it's important to note that Flint is not the only community to deal with lead-contaminated water. There are lead pipes all across the country. This could have happened in just about any community in this country because we have used lead for water pipes since the 1800s. Lead was a cheap, malleable, metal that was very easy to use for this purpose. That's why we did it way, way up into the 1900s. What happened in Flint was that they changed the water supply. So they got uh, water from the Flint River that happened to be more corrosive, and therefore it uh, leached lead into the water. And so it was a change in the water quality that made the difference. And changes like that have happened all over the country many times. And the basic problem is that we have a toxic metal in our water distribution system. And this is something that's really troubling to us in, in public health. We as a species have the smartest, the most complicated brain in the animal kingdom. And because it is so complicated, the, the process of developing it 
is extremely complex and at the same time vulnerable. And the point is then, if you're exposed to toxic element like lead during that period, then things can go wrong and you only get one chance to develop a brain. So you stuck with that the rest of your life. And to watch that webcast on lead and other chemical exposures in full, visit forumhsph.org. Researchers in the UK say that organic meat and milk have higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids, compounds shown to lower a person's risk of heart disease. That's right, Amy. Scientists at Newcastle University say that the levels of fatty acids were 50% higher in organic products compared to conventional meat and milk. In the case of milk, for example, 39 grams of omega-3 were found in the organic version and 25 grams in the conventional version. Now, one reason may be that omega-3 is much more prevalent in grass than in grain. And most organic milk and beef come from cattle that graze on grass, while conventional products come from cows who eat grain. But no, the research does have its skeptics. The study was funded in part by a charity that supports organic farming research, and nutrition experts say it's not clear if the differences will actually translate into better health for people who eat organic. And Amy, one of those critics is Walter Willett, chair of the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard Chan School. He told the New York Times that the differences in fatty acid levels between organic and conventional beef were trivial, pointing out that both still contained high levels of saturated fat. Instead, he recommended that people seeking out high levels of fatty acid should switch from red meat to poultry or fish. And finally in this episode, congratulations to the new dean-elect at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Michelle Williams. Amy, Professor Williams, who is a Harvard Chan alum, is also an eminent epidemiologist, teacher, and mentor. And she's been the chair of the school's Department of Epidemiology since 2011. She'll assume the new role as dean of the school on July 1st. So again, congratulations to Professor Michelle Williams, the new dean-elect at the Harvard Chan School. That's all for Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. You can listen to this podcast anytime by visiting our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash harvardpublichealth, or visit hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth to learn how you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Stitcher.